Lord, your name is majestic. Your works are majestic. Your character is majestic. Your presence is majestic. Your glory is unfathomably majestic. And Lord, would you reveal your glory to us? Lord, would you shine that incredible presence through your Holy Spirit among your people, Lord? And Lord, may we catch a glimpse of that incredible beauty and magnificence and the righteousness and the majesty of God. Lord, that when we would think of you and and even utter that little three-letter word, God, that we would be drawn back into a consideration of how unbelievably amazing you are and how incredibly blessed we are to be called your children, to be called your friends, to be called your family, to be called beloved by you. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Lord, I thank you that you that we are, because of Jesus, we are the apple of your eye. Just like any little child is to that child's parents. Lord, I thank you, even as, as I think of little Sophie, who Melissa made reference to earlier. I think of that precious new baby just born this morning. And the joy and the love that come from a mother's heart to that precious child. Thank you, Lord, that that is the kind of love, times infinity, that you have for every person in this room. And every person who is the product of the hand of your creation. And, oh, Lord, as we continue to grow together as a community and as individuals, thank you that you are making us, transforming us continually more and more as we understand who we are in Christ. You're transforming us more and more to reflect Jesus. And Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that your children would be filled and filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and with your glory, Lord, that your unmistakable reality would be made manifest, especially, Lord, where we need encouragement. But, Lord, even just because, just because all that is good that you have done is ultimately for your glory. And God, we give you praise for that today. Help me, Lord. Help each of us to continue to gain more and more understanding of our position in you, of our relationship to you. And Lord, I thank you that you are not a parent 
who is looking down on us, just waiting for that opportunity to give us a whooping. Well, Lord, I thank you that you are, so to speak, looking down upon us, looking for every opportunity to fill us with your joy. And to grow that relationship that you have initiated with each one of us. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise for that. And Lord, so much more that we could praise you for. And we will continue to. And may we all the days of our life, even as we have just sung, may your praise come from our lips. Because of what you have initiated with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So a quarter after 11, eh? How fast can I talk? When God looks at you, what would you say that God sees? When God thinks of you, What would you say that God thinks? Will you just reflect on that uh, for a moment? When you think God looks upon me, God sees me, God thinks about me, what, what runs through God's mind to speak in our terms? What runs through God? What does God think of you when he looks at you? What does God see when he sees you? This is the second last week of our Identity Crisis, Who Do You Think You Are series. And I believe this message is crucial. I I believe they're all important, as long as they come from God's Word. I believe this is crucial. How we answer those questions uh, might be very different from how I believe that God answers them, according to what we learn from the Bible. But what we think of what God thinks of us, what God sees in us, may be very different from what his word says. And that's what we're going to address, continue to address today. And it might make all the difference in coming to understand your identity and my identity in how we answer those questions and how we come to answer those questions. And helping other people to, ad- to understand the identity that they have or that they can have by being a follower of Jesus and a child of God. Because when we describe what we think God thinks of us or what we think God sees, my hunch is that a lot of us would answer with some version of I don't think it's a very pretty picture. You ever been there? And, and I would like to believe, and I do, that, that a lot of us who are here today, whether it's because of the series that, that, that we've been working through or because of the, maybe you've, maybe you've read the book that we've referenced, which is Victory Over the Darkness by Neil Anderson, more importantly because you've read the Word of God, uh, that you might be well ahead on this and say, no, that's not how I, I don't, I don't view myself as being an ugly picture when I think of what God thinks of me. But there probably 
or very few of us who at some point in our lives, maybe even right now, that our answer would be, you know, I, I think it's not a very pretty picture what God thinks of me. I, I, I hesitate to think. I shudder to think of what God thinks of me, what God sees when he looks at me. Because I know what I'm really like. And I would suggest what's really happening is that at least to some extent, we end up projecting onto God our opinion of ourselves. Does that make sense? And probably most of us, if not all of us, at least at some time when we've thought of what God thinks of us or sees in us, we come from... We come from the angle of, or we come from the perspective of what we look like, what we feel like, and what we've done that's right or wrong. And because those are the metrics, those are the measurements that we often use to evaluate ourselves and other people, what we look like, what we feel like, and what we've done right or wrong, then we project that onto God and assume that must be the kind of measurement that God uses in evaluating us. And we want to speak to that today. So let me illustrate. Before you is a picture of a very famous painting. And if you're an art lover and you're thinking, I love that one, then please forgive me when I disagree. And I admit that I don't quite get it. Because a look at this picture of a painting, a look at this picture of a painting, my first reaction in all seriousness is, what on earth is that? (laughs) That's just my, that's my honest first reaction when I see that. And the answer is that that painting no doubt worth tens of millions of dollars, is by Pablo Picasso, a 20th century Spanish painter. And the painting is called Majoli. And Majoli means my pretty. And then it all makes sense. Of course, it's so pretty. (laughs) It's my pretty or my pretty one. And the painting is, a, is an abstract, or, or very abstract, representation, believe it or not, of Picasso's girlfriend at the time. Now it just comes to life, doesn't it? <laughs> Using an art form called cubism. Now, Majoli was his nickname for his girlfriend at the time, and it was also the title of a famous French song in the early 1900s. And my reaction when I hear that is, what? I don't see her. Where is she? And what am I missing? But now when I do this, believe it or not, this is the actual person. Her name uh, was Marcel Hubert, or Humbert. 
And seriously, you might begin to see, with her standing beside you, might actually begin to see the representation. Because I did, as I looked at it, I began to see, hey, I, I, I can actually see in the center of that painting, I can begin to see that representation. Or maybe not. Okay. But to the average person, like to me, the two, the, um, with Marcel on the right and then the painting on, on, on your left, they look almost entirely different from each other, don't they? At least they do to my eye. When we're asked what we think God's perception of us is, we very well may come from those measurements of what we look like, what we feel like, what we've done right or wrong. And God's view of us is just as strikingly different as the picture is from that photo. Young adults, and in fact all of us, let me ask, do you ever compare yourself to how pretty somebody else is? Or how handsome somebody else is? Do you ever do that? Oh, you better believe it. Whether it's a picture of somebody, somebody or something that somebody has posted on social media, or maybe it's somebody that you know. Do you ever find yourself assessing your personal value based on how you look? Probably a lot of us have. Does anyone here ever find yourself measuring based on how somebody comes across and and how they present themselves and just how together they look. And you think, man, if I could just be as cool and together as that person. Or as attractive as that person. Or by what you look like at school. By, by, by how you come across based on your career. What you have or you haven't done or accomplished. Or what you do you don't own. Does anyone here ever measure your life and the importance of your life based on how you feel? You ever been there? And I will tell you that, that I, that's, that's been a struggle of mine recently about how I feel. And when, when people have asked me, Randall, what, what can we pray for you? What can we really pray for you? And my answer is, if I'm really honest and I look deep, you can pray for me for a restoration of joy in my life. Now, it's not to say that joy is absent, is, is absent from my life, but it certainly isn't there like it was since August. And that's okay to be honest about, isn't it? Uh, because we want to be honest. But something of that joy died in the month of August. But God is the God of the resurrection. Is he not? Amen? When you consider what you think of God's perception of you, does your mind ever go to what you've done right or wrong? Probably none of us is an exception to that. That at some point in our lives, maybe even right now, we think about what does God think of me? We go, I don't even want to think about what God thinks of me. Because I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. And there's no way, many people would say, there's no way that God's going to accept that or love me. 
Because God knows what I'm really like. And because those are our measurements for ourselves and for other people, again, we, we, we will project them onto God. And it's this statement that has turned the light on for me. I think of how God looks at me and thinks of me and judges me based on what I look like, how I feel, or what I've done because that's what I've projected onto God. You know, a light came onto me, and I, I mean recently, I mean in the last number of months, to say for me and for my understanding, that's part of the issue that I have had with really, really believing that God can love me as I am. Because I have projected onto God how I evaluate or judge myself and other people. This morning, can you say instead, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, can you say with confidence and with joy, God delights in me? Amen. Will you say that with me? God delights in me. And I, you're not saying that about me. God delights in me. God, you're saying that about you. God delights in you as his child. Just like a child delights in a parent... Regardless of what that child may do, a loving parent, that love will never be diminished. That doesn't mean there won't be discipline. There needs to be discipline. And there needs to be sincerity. There needs to be honesty. But that will be expressed because of love and it will be tempered by love. Right now I invite you to to read uh, some verses with me. We're going to go today. To Psalm 139. And we read, read these five verses with me, will you? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. There's one little phrase in there that, that might agitate us a little bit. We say, oh my goodness, God hems me in. I want you to understand that hem me in is a metaphor of protection. It is not a metaphor of entrapment. Because what follows next will make that very clear, that hemming me in is about God protects us, not God corners us, okay? Because, here's what comes next. Read these with me, will you? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. I don't have time to do a lot of unpacking this morning. The reality is God's word is alive, and I believe this morning it can be very effective by just allowing it to speak for itself. First Timothy No, I'll come there in a sec. God is everywhere. 
for the purpose of guiding and protecting. So when God hems us in, this is knowledge that is wonderful for us and the understanding that no matter where we go, God is there not to get us. And you can believe a lot of people have read this psalm and it's, it's caused them to shudder a little bit. Oh, God, where can I go from your spirit? I can't escape. Now that's in there. But you see where, the, where, where David was going with this, where the Holy Spirit was going, inspiring him with this, was to say the reason God is there is not to get you, but to protect you. Because that's the kind of a loving parent that God is. And until recently, I have struggled with the second half of this slide. And then I got a revelation. Because my struggle was, how can it be that God knits us all together in the womb? And yet, we can come out physically broken. How is it that God is the one given credit for knitting us together in the womb when we all come out broken to some extent? So we praise the Lord today for a a, a double lung transplant. Amen? But the nagging question in the back of the mind is, if God knit us together in the womb, why were Carissa's lungs broken in the first place with cystic fibrosis? You ever wrestle with that question? Why did our first son have a brain tumor in the womb? And now I believe and understand that God so beautifully described in this psalm as being everywhere or omnipresent. That God takes what is produced in a now fallen world. That's the place where he needs to, where he's necessarily now starts when it comes to knitting us together. Because this is a fallen world because of Satan and sin described in the Garden of Eden, which is where we started a few weeks ago. God is present at the genesis of all life. Holding all things together by his powerful word, the second person of the Trinity is Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. God is present holding it together, overseeing the beginning of life that has begun defective, imperfect, fallen because of sin. So it's not as though God is doing something imperfectly. It's because he has allowed, by our own decision, he has allowed through the freedom of human beings, he has allowed for sin to be in the world, not caused it. And because that's the starting point, God is left to work with imperfect materials. So that just as engineers and builders do the very best they can with limited materials in some developing countries, God takes the imperfect materials and he makes something beautiful. He makes a masterpiece. And you are a masterpiece. Will you receive that this morning? You are a beautiful masterpiece from the hand of God. You are one of a kind. That's why we have a fingerprint on the poster of this series. You are unique. And then we go through life and we struggle, all of us, because we discover that we're broken or we deny that we're broken. And other people are broken. 
And even pastors are broken. Amen. Everyone's broken. And then we encounter Jesus. And he invites us to follow him. And we decide. We make a determination of whether or not we will. And when we make that decision, yes, forgiven are all of our sins, past, present, future. Who would say hallelujah to that? Because he took our place to make just payment for those sins that only death can satisfy, because that's the only satisfactory answer to sin. And he could take our place because he lived and died, he alone, without having sinned. And when we say yes and we mean it and we follow, something amazing happens in the spiritual realm. We talked last week about becoming citizens of heaven. We sit in the heavenlies with him. We become in Christ, joined together with the Holy Spirit, with the Father. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God imprinted in us. And he is the one who makes us in Christ as that imprint. God makes us to be in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the imprint, the seal of that. When God looks at you, what does God see and think? Let me just quickly read these verses to you. Um, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us to others. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might actually become the righteousness of God. That is what God sees when he looks at us. When God looks at you, he doesn't assess based on what we look like physically, what we feel like emotionally or mentally, or what we've done right or wrong. God sees Jesus. God sees our righteousness. It's it's an out-of-body kind of experience. There have been TV shows like that, right? Where somebody takes in somebody somebody else's body. The Father sees the Son when he looks at you if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus. Because he is our righteousness. He is our payment. He is our replacement. He is our atonement. He is our sacrifice. He is our life. Picasso saw something so incredibly different in this picture than I do. But what a great illustration that yet pales in comparison to what God sees in you. Because Marcel's body died at the age of 29 or 30. And no matter how much money this painting fetches, it is not nearly as priceless. And it is not eternal like you are. 
So no matter what you look like, no matter how you feel, no matter what you've done, if you said a serious yes to Jesus, you're a Picasso times infinity in spiritual beauty, in spiritual health, in spiritual accomplishment. Because in the spiritual realm, what is true of Jesus is true of you in the spiritual. That's what God sees. Can we grasp that a little bit? You're beautiful as God intended you. We need to know that and hear that. We are transformed and being transformed more and more to reflect Jesus in us, the hope of glory, in community with church, living in the world, but not being of it. I'm almost done. We don't, as a result, need to change our appearance to be truly valuable. There's so many people who need to hear that. My heart breaks to read of how many people, and I say this carefully, but how many people have made the decision to change their gender and then have come to regret it because they discovered that that change did not address the deep-seated pain and insecurity, and fear, and crisis of identity that comes from the fact that we are broken. And that breaks my heart. And then we don't need to be ruled by our subjective emotions and thoughts. Instead, we keep coming back to God's word and what God's word says objectively about who you are and who I am in Jesus Christ. Because the old is gone and the new has come. And as Neil Anderson writes in Victory Over the Darkness, we don't serve God then to gain God's acceptance. We serve God recognizing as followers of Jesus that we are accepted by God. We serve God joyfully then as a response with our unique mix of spiritual gifts and abilities and passions. And the more that we accept who we are, the more comfortable we will become with who God says we are in Christ. And the more we can live out that identity as we prioritize time with him, time in God's word, to keep understanding and learning more and more what God objectively says about us in Christ. And then more and more the thinking and the doing will follow that are consistent with the being of who we are. Amen? And we'll touch on some of that next week. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled, and, and the elders aren't either, so we're not at odds. I, you know, I'm not thrilled about, about necessarily having to, to, say, to say I'm done. And what I, what I want to say this is so crucial, brothers and sisters. Would you agree with me? This is so crucial because we are governed so intensely by what we look like and what we think and what we've done and what we're doing. And it absolutely eats people up. And we're bombarded with it on social media. We're bombarded with it on, all, on every sort of media that what we look like, what we think, 
And what we've done and what we do are what define us. And may we experience the freedom that those things are all secondary and none of those things was ever intended to be our identity. But we can walk in the freedom and the newness of life of being in Jesus Christ and then all of that will follow in such a different way. And we'll have to keep wrestling with it. But we will keep pushing back against it because that's one of the attacks of the enemy to say, you are not what God says you are. And we say, in the name of Jesus, that is a lie. And we will not receive that. We will not walk in that. But we will recognize who we really are and we will walk in that. That's what I want. That, that's what I want to be our concluding word today. And a message that is for us and a message that we want to so lovingly take to the world. Because we're broken without Jesus.